very calamitous passage where we read about Saul, the end of Saul's life and David becoming king. So from 10 verse 1 to 11 verse 9. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified, would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died. So Saul and his three sons died, and all his house died together. When the Israelites in the valley saw that the army had fled and that Saul, had his, Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled, and the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news among their idols and their people. They put his armor in the temple of their gods and hung up his head in the temple of Dagon. When all the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard of everything the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men went and took the bodies of Saul and his sons and brought them to Jabesh. Then they buried their bones under the great tree at, in Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. All Israel came together to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord your God said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at, at Hebron, he made a compact with them at, the, at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel as the Lord had promised through Samuel. David and all the Israelites marched to Jerusalem, that is, Jebus. The Jebusites who lived there said to David, You will not get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. David had said, Whoever leads the attack on the Jebusites will become commander-in-chief. Joab, son of Zeruiah, Zeruiah, went up first, and, he, and so he received the command. David then took up residence in the fortress, and so it was called the City of David. He built up the city around it from the supporting terraces to the surrounding wall, while Joab restored the rest of the city. And David became more and more powerful because the Lord Almighty was with him. Uh, let us come before our Lord in a word of prayer now and think about this passage. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the time we share together now. Thank you that we can uh, try to read your word and understand it all together. Uh, help us to read the Old Testament uh, in the light of the new through Jesus and what he's done. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to respond to uh, the challenges in your word. And we give you thanks that 
we live in your grace and that we enjoy your forgiveness uh, when we fail to live up to our calling as your people. But thank you for this time now and, and for this challenge this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm smiling because I'm going to share a little bit about my heritage as a kid. Uh, when I had more hair growing up at the Baptist church as, as a cheeky little boy who rode his skateboard around at uh, morning tea time at Warhope Baptist. We had, um, we had church and morning tea and a, and a quad wrangle and I still got the scars to prove it. But as a kid growing up in the Baptist church, I was always struck by some of the tensions that go with being part of a group. On the one hand, mum and dad used to talk to my brother and I and say, we, we go to church because it's, it's also good to meet up with our Christian friends. And yet on the other hand, I can recall moments when, let's just say, from time to time, they used to find it a bit challenged, challenging to get on with everyone. Occasionally, they used to whinge about people too. Doesn't that sound shocking? Well, I'm sure it's um, not as surprising as it might sound. In fact, uh, there was one service that I can recall this was a little bit entertaining. Um, things were a little bit slow in the service. It was a little bit getting a little bit boring. And uh, in the next minute, I watched as a group of blokes, and my dad was one of them, uh, he, they got up and walked out. Uh, they walked out for an early morning tea in the service. Wow, I sat there and I thought, gee, I haven't seen a walkout before. That's, that's, uh, that was new. And anyway, admittedly, it wasn't a great room that we were meeting in. It was the, it was the art room at Warhope High and there were semi-nude pictures of Picasso, pictures around the room and weird-looking statues and things. And I didn't exactly want to keep the flock in there, that kind of room. But I don't think that's why they went out. Anyway, at morning tea time, I heard a conversation by some anxious leaders, stressed out, figuring out how they're going to keep those guys happy. And... Uh, and sort of improve the unity of the church from there. There was just a bit of an eye-opener to see that at church, sometimes there can be a bit of disunity. Well, as a child, I found that hard to understand. And then as an adolescent, I grew up and I realised that it can be tricky to get on with all of God's people all of the time and to be really united in love and spirit. That, that's, that was a challenge that I... I came to realise. Well, while I was learning something about maintaining the unity of the spirit and unity of church, I realised that it was something that we have to keep working at over time. It's not just something which uh, you get right and, and it stays the same. We have to keep working at it. And as we read Chronicles this morning, we actually come up against this topic of unity of the people of God. And it's a, it was an a issue for them and it remains to be an issue to this day. Can we be more united in Christ as God's church here in Port Macquarie? Well, let's start by not walking out during this sermon of mine. So st stay there, don't go for an early morning tea yet, and we'll see if we can get some challenges from this word. As we read through Chronicles, we've got to remember it was written at a time when people had returned from exile, they were rediscovering their place as God's people. They were rediscovering who they were in God's plans. And it's not a bad thing for us to think about as well. We're, who are we and where do we fit in God's plans as well? Today we're in chapter 10 of Chronicles. 
And it begins at a low point in the history of Israel as they start to see where they've come from and who they are in relation to God. This is a low point because uh, they start to look at the, let's call it the Saul experiment of kingship. You might have heard of the Latham experiment in uh, politics. Well, this is the Saul experiment uh, of kingship. This part of God's word is cast in terms which are pretty negative. It reflects failure and disaster of Saul's leadership. The Philistines are introduced in verse 1 and normally we'd expect to see the Israelites victorious in battle over them. But we're told instead that Israel fled from the Philistines and this happened under Saul's kingship. And like a scene from a movie, the, the writer starts to zoom in now away from just the, the Israelites running away from the Philistines themselves. We start to see that uh, even Saul now finds that they're the pressing hard against him and his sons. And then the archers find him and it's only a matter of time before he's wounded. Saul is familiar with the Philistines' treatment of their enemies and how they, they had a reputation actually for mutilating them. And so we're told that he prefers the option of suicide instead. But his armour bearer is unwilling to do the job, perhaps because he's worried about having the blood of the king on his hands or he has too much respect for Saul. Either way, Saul takes matters into his own hands and then he dies and so does his armour bearer and his sons. And in verse 6, we see that all his house died together. And so this is a subtext of saying this is the end of the line for leadership coming from Saul's family. To add insult into injury, we find out that Israelite towns are, ab are abandoned to the Philistines. Uh, what was maybe hoped for by having a king to gain more land into Phil Philistine territory, they're, they're starting to lose more than they gained. And then news gets back to the Philistines that Saul is dead. And the news, this is a little funny note, that the news travels and reaches their idols as well so that the idols become aware. It's sort of a way of saying that their idols don't know anything. Saul's head is hung in the temple of their god Dagon. He's been mistreated, but he salvages something of dignity as his followers come and take his body and the body of his sons, bring them back home and bury them. But the narrator hands down a verdict on the kingship of Saul. We see it there in, I think, verse 13 and 14. Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. Well, what can we conclude? He didn't seek the Lord with his whole heart and his kingship ended in failure. What can the people of the time the chronicler wrote those who received this book what could they take away from this message well they've they've had 70 years of exile in babylon and this lesson of saul reminds them of the seeds of israel's decline as the people of god so they're starting to see the seeds of things getting getting bad for them as a nation saul becomes a negative model a model of how not to do things as king he was supposed to be exemplary writing out the law in his own hand and living it out as an example to the other people 
but we're told that he didn't keep God's word and he didn't even seek the Lord for guidance. He sought a, a witch to raise up Samuel uh, and get word for what the outcome of the battle would be. Well, what can we take away from this part of the Bible? What can we take from this section of God's word? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, the Apostle Paul reminds us that the things of the Old Covenant were written down for our encouragement. They're written down as warnings to us. He says, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So we can still learn something from uh, Saul, that he didn't seek the Lord. We've got to remember that Jesus calls us to be uh, different to that. When Jesus talks to his people about not worrying about food and clothes, he reminds them, he reminds us to keep our, our focus right and says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. And so the message here is we're not to be a Saul, we're to be those who seek the Lord wholeheartedly. And so this week, let's be among those people who keep uh, seeking the Lord, his guidance, seeking to walk faithfully to the Lord. The Chronicler now draws our attention to a new stage in the plans of God. These plans uh, build on God's promises to bless his people and they continue to find fulfilment in our day as well. In David's reign, we see that in chapters uh, 11 and 12. I'll finish at the end of verse 10, verse 14. So the Lord put him, which is Saul, to death, if you're reading on with me, it's 10.14, and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. Chapter 11, verse 1. All Israel came together to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, even while Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord your God said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, he made a compact or, or a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel as the Lord had promised through Samuel. And so we have a turning point in the story as we move to the life of David, the son of Jesse. There's David, he's handsome and he's ruddy, whatever that means. And uh, people are going to him for leadership. And the language of the Israelites fleeing away from the Philistines, being defeated and their leader dying before them, that, all that language is, is uh, now a thing of the past and we have a better hope. Verse 1, all Israel came together to David. And this is um, big news for the nation. Uh, for those who were the exile, they, they know that you know, prior to their exile, the nation was divided. Uh, even in the time before Saul, the, the tribes struggled against each other, struggled for unity. But here we see that there's a step towards unity of the whole people of God. Fulfilling God's intentions since they walked out of Egypt to be one people of God. And David's spoken about in careful and important terms. The Lord your God said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, you will become their ruler. 
the shepherd metaphor is an important one. It involves the idea of actually caring for the sheep, caring and protecting the flock. And we know David had been faithful in the small things in looking after real sheep, uh, being a shepherd. And now he's got the calling to care for and lead God's people. This is his challenge as king. It's interesting to talk about even that word king, though. The, um, in the original, this word for ruler is the word for prince. And it's important to establish because he's prince over my people Israel. This is the idea that they have a king. It's one called Yahweh, who's the Lord of hosts. God is the king and they're his people. They're not David's people. And so David's this little prince under God who is the big king. And this is important for them because even though David dies, they still have a king. Back in the land now, God is still their king. And David only reigns as a prince under the big king God. The princely idea also contains an important aspect about uh, battle. In verse 2, we see they've, they've hinted to this. In the past, even while Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And so the king, or the prince, he is a, he is a king, there's no doubt about it, but he's, he's given this word about the prince because it's important to distinguish God as the king. Uh, but the, the king was a saviour type figure who helped deliver his people. And we know that David's kingship was a special one. Uh, you're familiar with the prophecy from Nathan that there would be a king on David's throne forever. We read that in 2 Samuel 7:16. Nathan says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so this hope in God's word that there will be a king on the throne of David to come uh, reminds us about David's greater son, Jesus. And God's word is, is handy here because it helps join the dots for us. If we turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 32... In Luke chapter 1, verse 32, I'll, I'll read it if you don't have it, that's okay. The angel Gabriel speaks to Mary and speaks about the fulfillment of the, the prophecies of the past. The angel says, Gabriel says, He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And so this um, reign of David that we, we start to see foreshadowed here in Chronicles, we find uh, has significance for a greater king to come, one called Jesus. These seeds sprout and form the, the bigger plant. Jesus comes as the king on David's throne. But as we know, Jesus is a different kind of king. He was faithful in a way that all of the kings before him were not faithful. They, they couldn't match him. And he leads his people in victory as well, but it's not against Philistines. As the risen Lord, Jesus is the one who has defeated sin and death on our behalf, which is wonderful news. And Paul writes about this kind of uh, victory that Jesus has in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 56. He says, the sting of death is sin. 
presumably because there's going to be judgment for sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as the risen Lord, Jesus bears our sin. Uh, The law accuses us that we fall short of God and living his way, and that's correct, we do fall short. And yet Jesus is our faithful king who is also a suffering servant and delivers us from the consequences of our sin. He delivers us from the judgment, God's judgment, and brings us forgiveness. That is something to rejoice in, in our king. Furthermore, Jesus is able to raise us as the risen Lord. Uh, He is risen and is able to raise us and take us to be at home with the Lord in his kingdom to come forever. That's the deliverance our king gives us. And we see that hope of the idea of dwelling with the Lord expressed earlier in the Bible. That idea of God's people dwelling with him is a theme that runs from the very start of the Bible right through to the end. At the beginning, we see Adam and Eve living or dwelling uh, in Eden with God. Abraham is promised a land for God's people to dwell with God as his people. And in the Exodus, Moses and some of the Israelites sing about this idea that they'll be on the mountain of the Lord um, with the Lord. This is what Moses and the people sing in Exodus 15, 17. I don't know the tune of this one. I know the horse and rider thrown into the sea one, but not this part. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. So here's the idea that God's going to bring his people in and it's the place where God's going to dwell with them. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Now, as we continue to pass, you know, through the Old Testament, we've started at Eden, we've dealt with Abraham and Moses. As we come to this part of of God's word in Chronicles, we see something of the fulfillment of where God would place his name amongst his people, where he would dwell amongst his people. And that's the establishment of Jerusalem. I'll pick it up in chapter 11, verse 4 to 9, if you're reading on. So David's become king, and David and all the Israelites marched to Jerusalem, that is Jebus. The Jebusites who lived there said to David, you'll not get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. David had said, whoever leads the attack on the Jebusites will become commander-in-chief. Joab, son of Zeruiah, went up first, and so he received the command. David then took up residence in the fortress, and so it was called the city of David. He built up the city around it, from the supporting terraces to the surrounding wall, while Joab restored the rest of the city. David became more and more powerful because the Lord Almighty was with him. And so we see that the Lord is with David as he takes Jerusalem, and this is the place we'll see later that God establishes his name, This is the place where the temple gets established, the abode of God, uh, God dwelling amongst his people. And yet even that temple, even that um, dwelling of God amongst his people is still the seed of an idea that flourishes later on. Uh, Jerusalem and the temple are still described as a shadow 
of the realities to come. They represent a visual aid, a small-scale representation of something that's much grander. In fact, the whole creation will be a renewed creation where people will dwell with God and one another forever. God's people all together with God. Uh, something that's even grander than this little-scale thing we see in Chronicles. And something of that expectation we see also here in Chronicles where there's unity among the people of God as well. So there's an anticipation of God dwelling with his people, but they're, they're not in malice and nastiness. It's, there's unity. In 1 Chronicles chapter 11 and 12, we start to see what happens next is that all these tribes, some of them who even served Saul and were, were resistant to David, are now throwing their weight and support behind God's king, David. That's what we start to see in these chapters from uh, 11, 1 to 3 through to the end of chapter 12. There are David's warriors that we get confronted with in uh, chapter 11, verse 10. People are coming together under his kingship. We get a list of mighty men who are showing their allegiance to David. It reflects well on his leadership and the unity that's starting to exist between God, his king, the mighty warriors and the people. Chapter 12, verse 18 captures the essence of this cooperation that's, that's uh, really taking shape between God and these people and their King David. Chapter 12, verse 18 says, Then the Spirit came on Amasai, chief of the thirty, and he said, We are yours, O David. We are with you, O son of Jesse. Success. Success to you and success to those who help you your God will help you. And so David received them and made them leaders of his raiding band. So this idea of help, they're, they're prepared to help David. It shows the spirit of unity that they're, they're getting behind their king. And the theme of unity gets rounded out in chapter 12, verses 38 to 40. I'll read that. All these were fighting men who volunteered to serve in the ranks. They came to Hebron fully determined to make David king over all Israel. All the rest of the Israelites were also of one mind to make David king. It couldn't be put any more forcefully, could it? This, this unity behind him. Verse 39, the men spent three days there with David, eating and drinking for their families had supplied provisions for them. Also, their neighbours from as far away as Issachar, Zebulun, Naphtali, came bringing food on donkeys, camels, mules and oxen. There were plentiful supplies of flour, fig cakes, raisin cakes, wine, oil, cattle and sheep, for there was joy in Israel. At this point in the story, this is, this is quite a nice moment, isn't it? It's a high point. That's the tone. God's prince reigns under God and his people live in unity together and they're blessed by God. It's a great picture of life. Peace with God, peace with his king, peace between the people. It's really good stuff to be celebrated, this, this idea of being unified under God. And yet that uh, peace only remained for a time in the old covenant. And yet the hope of peace and unity for God and his people continues. 
and it continues even to this day. As we are sinful people, we live in a fallen world, we don't always find it easy uh, to achieve unity all the time. And so the New Testament writers acknowledge this and they encourage us to strive, strive for that unity. As Christians, we are those who are united to Christ through faith. Paul can write in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10 about God's plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, which is Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Unity in Christ is the key. As Christians, we're united in the gospel, we're united in that, that saving message. We rely on the finished work of Jesus for our salvation. We share that in common. We share Jesus as Lord in common. That's, that's where our unity rests. And we're encouraged to maintain unity and fellowship with one another as well. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's the challenge. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In heaven, sin will be a thing of the past and unity won't be much of a challenge, but now's the time for us to remain faithful to the Lord, to, to remain united to Christ, to keep walking closely with the Lord. And the challenge is for us to remain united together as brothers and sisters in Christ. In future, we'll be right with the Lord in heaven, dwelling together without sin, in perfect unity, but now's the time for us to keep working at that challenge to be united in the spirit through the bond of peace. This is the challenge in that time before the end. So may God strengthen us as we seek to hold on to Christ and hold on to uh, unity with one another in Christ. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer that God will help us in that process. Let us bow and pray. Oh Lord God, as we think about this message from Chronicles this morning, we pray that we learn something from the life of Saul, his failure to obey your word and to seek you. Lord, we pray that instead you would help us to be those who seek you wholeheartedly, seek your kingdom and your righteousness. Help us to be among those who hold on to our faith in Jesus and to walk closely with you. We pray that you'd strengthen us in that uh, today and in the, in the days to come. Lord, we give you thanks that Jesus is the one who sits on the throne of David forever, that he is our king who rescues us from the consequences of our sin. We give you thanks for the finished work of Christ, that we can know your love for us uh, through what he's done 2,000 years ago. We give you thanks for the fruit of that. We enjoy your forgiveness and stand in your grace. And Lord, we pray that as your people, we be those who seek to maintain the unity of the spirit. And so, Lord, we pray you'd help us to enjoy Jesus as Lord and unity together in him. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.